0: We're going to be uh, looking at a variety of Bible passages today. The first one is Luke chapter 2, so if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it to there. If you happen to have the YouVersion Bible app on your phone and you click the menu and look for an event near you, you'll find the scripture there along with some sermon notes that might be helpful for you. I'm going to be reading that um, Luke chapter 2 from the uh, Charlie Brown version, that is the version on uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, the old one with Linus reading it there from the King James, so in a little bit. I'll be reading uh, from Luke 2 there for you. Wow, Christmas. Doesn't it seem like just this past week it was Thanksgiving, right? (laughs) It really sneaks up on you. Are you ready? I need to know. Is there anyone here that has all their Christmas shopping done? Put your hand up. Wow, one, two. Yeah, just a couple of us. That's great. Brian put his hand up because his wife takes care of all of that. Right, Brian? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I haven't even started my Christmas shopping. I started other things, though. I actually started this Advent series that I'm putting together here back in October. Uh, the thought occurred to me uh, about an Advent uh, journey we could go on together and uh, kind of, uh, I think it's going to be a fun time. You know that you're sitting in an alliance church, that is a Christian and missionary alliance church. And we are a people who, are, are, our movement was born out of a hunger for God's presence and a desire to fill God's mission, uh, to join him in that. The Presbyterian pastor, 125 or more years ago, who founded our movement, um, he spoke about this in terms of understanding Jesus as our Savior. That's what that cross is on that emblem there, the Alliance logo. And Jesus is our sanctifier. If you notice to the right of the cross there, you see something that always looks like a wine glass to me. I'm just going to say this, even though I have a couple colleagues here. I think that's unfortunate artwork because no one thinks of that as something that you wash in but it's a laver, a basin for washing. So Jesus, the cross, is our savior. He died to save us. And Jesus is our sanctifier. By his his death, we are washed from our sins, separated from sin and dedicated to God. Then if you look on the left-hand side, you see what appears to be a pitcher. It is a vial, a cruise of oil that Jesus... Well, I got that wrong, didn't I? No, that Jesus is our healer. And oil is uh, symbolic of the Holy Spirit in James chapter 5. It says, is any among you sick? You should come to the elders of the church, call on them, and they'll anoint him with oil, and, and the prayer of faith will make the sick person well. We see Jesus as our savior, our sanctifier, our healer, and then a crown shows that Jesus is our coming king. That's what we believe as Alliance people. That is what we, we preach, what we teach over and over again. As Christmas approaches, we're really keenly aware of those things, and you find the the leadership in the alliance. So I was always looking for new ways to say what God is about, what is he wanting to do, what is he wanting to accomplish. And we noticed that he came in love, and he came to proclaim, he came to reach, and he came to launch. And today I'm going to talk to you about that concept of God coming to reach us. And he even calls us to do the same, to reach others. We will reach others for him. When I think of this concept of God coming to reach out to us, to to connect with us, to show us himself, to show us his love. I'm always reminded of a story by a man named Soren Kierkegaard. Soren Kierkegaard was a bit of a philosopher, a bit of a theologian. Philip Yancey often quotes from him. And in one of his books, Philip Yancey looks at a story told by Soren Kierkegaard that helps us understand this concept of Jesus reaching us, coming to us. Let me read it to you. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. Begins a story by Kierkegaard. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his very kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her with royal robes, She surely would not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly, or would she live in in fear with him? Nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind, would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, That, too, would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she a humble maiden, and to let shared love cross over the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal, concluded Kierkegaard. The king, convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend. He clothed himself as a beggar and approached her cottage incognito with a worn cloak fluttering loosely about him. It was no mere disguise, but a new identity he took on. He renounced the throne to win her hand. Now that, Kierkegaard suggests, is what God did in becoming a human being that he left the ivory palaces, so to speak, and came into this world of woe. He came to reach, to reach you and to reach me. In fact, I would suggest to you that reaching is what Christmas is all about. Linus says it very well in the original Charlie Brown Christmas, when Charlie Brown is kind of at a point of despair, if you think about it. He cries out at one point in that, Charlie does, saying, Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Boy, I think I even got his inflection, didn't I? And then Linus, the resident theologian in that cartoon series, he says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And then Linus goes on to quote these words from the King James Bible. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And then Linus calmly walks off of the stage, back over to Charlie Brown and says, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And he's right. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about God reaching us, about God connecting with us. And God connects to us on many levels. He reaches out to us physically, so to speak. He physically came to be among us. 700 years before he was born there in Bethlehem, Isaiah spoke of this. And he said, For unto us a child is born. A child is made flesh. A child comes, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called mighty God, the enfleshment of God, the incarnation The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to a young pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 16, speaking of Jesus, he says, he appeared in the flesh. God appeared in physical form in the flesh. And John, as of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, John, who wrote the fourth gospel. He doesn't tell stories at Christmas of angels. He doesn't tell stories of shepherds. He says it like this the word became, anyone know the next, next term? Flesh and made his dwelling among us. God came and lived among us. Listen, if you want to connect to someone, you need to be there on location. I mean, think about our international workers for a moment. I can't tell you how many people have said to me through the years and said to me even more now that my daughter has gone to a foreign land where the gospel is not welcome. Many people have said to me along the way, yeah, I don't understand, Steve, why we have to send people to other countries, particularly those countries where they may not be welcome to share the gospel. I mean, think of the technology we have today, Steve. You've probably never thought of this, but there's a thing called the internet. And there's telephones, there's Skype, there's Facebook, whatever, you know, all the, all the technology we have, radio, Why do we have to send people there? Can't we just use the internet? No. (laughs) No, we can't. And people who are active in that kind of ministry all agree that nothing comes close to producing the fruit that being physically there face-to-face does. They know that. And God knows that. God knows that nothing comes close to producing the fruit that he desires to produce shy of him coming in the flesh and dwelling among us. And that's why he reached to us physically. That's why he became human. He connects with us physically. He connects with us as well emotionally. We are emotional beings. and Emotions are important to us. We use this phrase, bonding. And when, a, when a new baby is born... They almost always, unless there's some kind of difficulty, take that child and lay it on the, mother's, on the mother's breast because they want that emotional bond to begin immediately. And they will say to you that it is essential that that mother-child bond is formed for the well-being of both of them. Bonding. If I say to my wife, hey, I'm going to go hunting with Willis, or hey, Joey and I are going to go on a motorcycle ride together, or hey, I think I'm going to just go out and have coffee with George. My wife will always say, good. (laughs) And then she'll say, you need some male bonding, right? Yeah. Because we're emotional people who need that male bonding ritual, that motherly bond. Even my wife, she will say to me, I'm going to go have tea or coffee at this coffee shop with my friend. and, And they'll sit there face to face and talk about whatever women talk about in that context. My wife comes home feeling refreshed. She's just glad that she did that kind of thing, sort of thing. It's bonding. This emotional thing, this emotional connection, researchers tell us there are a number of qualifications that a relationship must have in order to satisfy you emotionally. There's some questions that need to be addressed. And the first of those questions is this. Are you accessible to me? If I'm going to have an emotional bond with you, then I need to know that when you call my name, I'm sorry, I need to know that when I call your name, you will hear me. Is your cell phone on? Did you even bring it with you? I need to know you have it. Have you had people who got unreasonably angry with you because your cell phone was not with you or not on? Here's one of the reasons why. Because that told them you were inaccessible to me and I thought we had an emotional bond. It's irrational, but it's a real complaint that people have. Researchers say, I need to know you're accessible to me if you and I have an emotional relationship. Second, I need to know that you're responsive to me, that I can count on you to comfort me when I am afraid or when I am lonely. That you are going to make me a priority. You're not just going to know I have a problem, but you're going to work to help me with that problem. I need to know you're going to expend energy in response to what I might, what I might ask of you. If I'm going to have that kind of emotional bond with you, I need you to be responsive to me and I need you to be engaged in my life. I need to know that my well-being is important to you. I need to believe that you are here for the long run for me. Now listen carefully to this. Jesus' birth, his reaching toward us, answers all of those questions with a resounding yes. Yes, I am accessible to you. Yes, I am responsive to you. Yes, I am engaged in your life. Yes, I connect with you emotionally. Likewise, God reaches to us spiritually. Have you heard someone say something like this? You know, I I would like to believe in God, and I've even said, God, if you exist, show me. Just give me some kind of sign, girl. Sorry, that just happened. (laughs) Give me some kind of sign, God. Show me. Show me that you're you're real. And you know what? He didn't do. I saw no evidence at all. God didn't come through for me. Maybe you've said that yourself. Listen, with all due respect, (laughs) you're not looking. I don't believe you're looking. I kind of want you to be able to see how God connects with you spiritually in maybe things that might seem very ordinary and everyday, that he does extraordinary things that have a spiritual dimension to them that you might have missed. Have you ever had one of those, wait, what, moments in your life? You know, when you're walking along, everything's cool, you whoa, wait, what, what's that? I wonder if that's a moment when maybe God is speaking to you. Like maybe when something happens, that takes your breath away. <laughs> maybe your sweetheart walking down the aisle while you were standing right here. And you're like, Whoo, I knew she was pretty, but I didn't know she was that pretty. You know? Or maybe a pair of playful fawns stumbled across your path. One time I was out with the Sunderland boys, Ted Sunderland, Claire Sunderland, and uh, the one who passed away, Charles I used to call them the Sunderland boys because they were all retired and I was in my 30s. And I'd say to my wife, me and the Sunderland boys are going out, you know? And we went out and we were, they had just gotten those little doe bleats and fawn bleats, you know, you know those things. And so we went out one evening and, and we, we we drove to different places and stood at the edge of a field and they did that bleat. I'll never forget one time, Ted Sunderland, who you know, Ted Sunderland is, is uh, standing there. I'm about 10 feet away from him and they did the bleat And right in front of him, from here to the window from him, these doe, I'm sorry, two fawns, real little fawns, came out of the bushes. And Ted goes like this, and he froze. He wanted to make sure that I saw it, because, you know, me, I'm kind of playing around, you know, whatever. right? And, and And he just froze like this. And those two fawns, they came up. Wow, I got goosebumps talking about it. It was just so cool. They came up, and one of them came up and laid down on the toe of his boot. And he just stood there like a statue, you know? I'm like, wait, what? Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. Or maybe another wait, what moment for you was when you held a child, maybe your own or a grandchild or maybe someone else's child. You're just holding it there as you're reclined and it's against your chest and, and you feel that whisper of, it, of baby breath <laughs> across your face. And you're like, wait, what? Wow, that's amazing. I want to suggest to you that those everyday events are not mere brick-and-mortar occurrences. You understand what I mean by that? That there's a spiritual dimension that God is kind of pulling back, pulling back the curtain and letting you look into something that transcends your everyday life. Or have you ever been going somewhere and you had that sense of the divine? I can remember one time I was cross-country skiing. Did you hear that? One time, cross-country skiing. I don't know if the cross-country skiers don't know this or not, but there's this thing called gravity, and it has a purpose in skiing, right? I'm out there cross-country skiing, I'm huffing along, and there's a kid with me, he's about nine years old, and he's beside me, and I think he's there, he's just pitying the pastor, you know, cause this guy can't keep up. He's beside me, and, and we were looking, and it was one of those moments we were in New York, and we we're looking, and, and the, uh, in western New York, the, it was so still that the snow was stacked up on the tiniest of branches. You've seen that, right? And, and then every now and then a little wind would blow and it would come down like sparkling diamonds. And you could see shafts of sunlight coming down, you know? And this, this little boy, nine years old probably, he was younger than that because I could pick him up like he'd make his arms stiff and I could pick him up. So he's really little. But he looked at me and he said, hey, Pastor Steve, doesn't that just remind you of God? Yeah, yeah, it does. It's a divine moment. Or maybe you're driving in the darkness, you know, and you're coming home from something and you come around a corner and, and there that high wind has blown a tree right onto the road and you swerve and you feel your car is out of control. This happened to me recently, can you tell? And whoa, I'm back onto the road and you're just, whew, I'm fine. The hair standing up on the back of your neck, your pulse quickening, and you instinctively want to say, thank you, God. I mean, even if you're not sure there is a God, you have that kind of instinct there, that divine encounter, that sense of the divine. Or you feel in love with that guy or that girl and you feel like you could float. Why does that happen? Again, those are not brick-and-mortar experiences. They transcend this planet. And it's God's way of letting you know and connecting with you spiritually to say, there's more. There's more than this. There's more. And it is all part of his reach. (laughs) His reach toward us. He reaches us personally. And there's nothing like that personal connection. You know, my daughter lives overseas. My son lives across the country. And I remember the days of writing letters. Laurel still has a box full of letters that we wrote back and forth. In the Stone Age, Fred Flintstone carried those back and forth for us, you know? Email, wow, that's so good. Whoa, signal instant messenger, that's even better. Wow, audio recordings, that's fantastic. Wow, wow. <laughs> Wow, Skype! Skype! There it is. There's my grandson. There's my daughter. I love that kind of thing. But let me tell you this. Nothing replaces the personal connection of being in the same room and breathing the same air. I know that. You know that. And God knew that. And that is why he reaches to us personally. And Christmas remembers that. He reminds us of that. Now, before we get all warm and fuzzy, we've been really warm and fuzzy, haven't we? Yeah, (laughs) let's transition a little bit. Let me just tell you that reaching is harder than most people think. It is. (laughs) A few years ago, in uh, an earlier ministry I was involved in, I heard a man who attended quite regularly make this statement or this kind of statement. I didn't write it down, so this isn't word for word, but this is the gist of it. I'm not sure what to think of a father who kills his son for others. It's a regular in the church. That kind of statement shows me that we're probably not teaching good theology. And there's a number of reasons maybe we're not teaching good theology, maybe because we're working really hard to be relevant and give people something they can use. Now, I get that. I believe in relevance. In fact, I have suffered painful criticism for people who felt I believed in relevance uh, too much. I believe in relevance, and I believe in using whatever media we can use well to communicate the gospel message. I'm all on board with that, and I want to give you something you can use. I want you to go home and feel like, okay, I can use that, and I want to give you something inspiring along the way, but I fear that many times, many times as the today's church and today's pastor wants to do that, they kind of do that to the exclusion of teaching a little bit of good theology, so let me teach you a little bit of good theology, okay? <laughs> yeah. Let's address that question. What are we to think of a God who kills his son so that others may live? Another way to consider the issue is, does God sacrifice his son or does he sacrifice himself? And the answer to that is both. (laughs) Both. You see, in reaching us, God sacrifices himself. And if you don't see that, you're missing the unity part of the Trinity. God. One. Unified. Wayne Grudem, when he writes about the Trinity, he says this. He says, God is in his very being and has always existed as more than one person. In fact, God exists as three persons. And yet, and this is a part we often miss, he is one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, three persons in one being, one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one, one God. Now, considering the Trinity can be kind of mind-bending. In the Godhead, there are three persons, and each person in that Trinity is fully God, completely divine, and each person in that Trinity is a distinct person, and yet they are one God. There is only one God in the Godhead. I feel like that statement, there is one God, is both underemphasized and undervalued by today's Christian, that we kind of miss that part of it. The union of the Triune God is absolutely essential to understanding him, and it is definitely essential to understanding the importance of his reach. Because listen to this: if God is not one, if there are three distinct gods, then at the cross you are watching something terrible occur. You are watching a father torture his son to the point of death on behalf of people who don't deserve it. Wow. And no wonder there's such a strong objection to Christianity, if that's what we're communicating. But when you understand that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one, then you understand that God has placed himself on the cross. For when Christ is suffering, God is suffering. I and the Father, Jesus says, are one. Good theology teaches us that in reaching, it is God who pays our debt. He pays the penalty. This is his plan, and it has been his plan in his mind in eternity past, since before the foundation of the cosmos. This is his plan. For God, reaching means leaving heaven and entering a barn, a stable, so he could pay our debt. For God, reaching means not sitting on a throne, but rather being placed in a food trough so that he could pay our debt. For God, reaching means being bullied, probably by other kids when you were a kid, and definitely by other adults when you're an adult so that he could pay our debt. For God, reaching means having to disappear from that crowd that wants to throw you off of that cliff over there so you don't die prematurely and you're doing all of that so you could pay our debt. For God, reaching means spending three years with a group of men who are as thick as bricks and as juvenile as little boys in a sandlot playground fighting about who's the best and who's the leader and who's the most important so that he could pay our debt. For God, reaching means being abandoned by those closest to you when you need them most so that he could pay our debt. For God, reaching means dying a shameful death so you could pay, so he could pay our debt. It means carrying undeserved guilt and shame so that he could pay our debt. You see, reaching is harder than most of us think, much harder than you and I could ever imagine. So how do we respond to that? I mean, what does that reach going to mean to you and me when you consider that God loves you and gave his very self in your place so that you could be free from guilt and shame? What does that do for you? How, how does one respond to that? Well, when I think of it, when I think of Advent, it makes me want to rejoice. It doesn't fill my heart with guilt because he died to take away my guilt. So I'm not like, oh yeah, Jesus died for me. Man, I'm just useless. No, it makes me say, woohoo, Jesus died for me. That is worth celebrating. That is a wonderful kind of thing. And it has an emotional component to it when I think about it. I was texting, actually it was a Google Hangout with some of my family this week. And sometimes I use them as a man in a pew. Do you know what this word means? Can I use it in a sermon? You know, that kind of thing. And, and so this week I, I sent out a message. I said, can any of you explain to me what the hypostatic union is? You know? You know what the hypostatic union is? It's that thing behind your clutch on your transmission. It's a little connector there. The hypostatic union is that mystical and, and mysterious rather. It is that mysterious reality that Jesus is fully divine and Jesus is fully human and they are unified union, that union is called the hypostatic union. He's not half God, half man, he's not a half breed. It's a completely human, completely divine interchange, their interaction there, the hypostatic union. So, you know, after I ask them the question and they, they got to know what it is, you know? So I just want to share with you what I wrote. This was my conversation with them. Because Jesus is fully man, he can represent our race fully sealing the covenant in his blood to pay for our sins. Because he is fully God, he can speak for the Godhead in ratifying that same covenant. I cannot do that. I am not divine. And God could not do that. He could not act on our behalf. But in the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son, God can act on our behalf, becoming obedient for us, obedient to death on the cross, so we could be forgiven. It is it is theological poetry, (laughs) My eyes water with wonder as I type it. And I rejoice in it. That he would give himself. Himself. Whoa. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The reach of God brings joy to a discerning heart. And second, the reach of God makes me want to connect deeply with him. It's not like the reach of God when I hear that and put that together in my head. just says to me, oh, that's cool. I can go to heaven. Now, what's next? Let's go over there. Not at all. He gave so much to make this possible. How can I not want that which he made possible? Connection, closeness, friendship, fellowship. This past week on Thanksgiving Day, Laurel and I spent the day with her nephew, Andy, and his family. Andy is about your age, Robbie. um, And uh, he uh, has a house. It's like in Lancaster. He lives in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And there's a a rather large house that they cut into two units. You know how they'll do that? And he actually bought half of that house. And he lives there. And he said, hey, Aunt Laurel, do you and Uncle Steve want to come and spend Thanksgiving Day with us? Because the Smith clan always has been together on Thanksgiving. And uh, Laurel said, what do you think, Steve? I said, yeah, I mean, let's go. So we went, now I want you to think about this small half a house. Here's who was there. Andy and his wife, Jenna. Not our Andy and Jenna. That causes much confusion in Laurel's and my conversation sometimes. Andy and his wife, Jenna, and their little girl, who is how old, Laurel? Two-year-old girl, and their second child. How long ago did Jenna have that baby? A month ago. Okay, you just had a a baby a month ago. Let's have the whole Smith clan in for Thanksgiving. And they had his sister, Amy. And they had his brother, Matt. And they had, as well, his sister, Karen, and her wife, Tyler. Tyler. And their child, who's two years old as well, and the twins that the two of them had a month ago. And Aunt Laurel and Grandma Lois and Uncle Steve. That's got to be the worst thing to have at a Thanksgiving dinner, right? And they had us all there. I was on my best behavior, you know? They went out of their way. He married a girl that's a little bit Mennonite. I'm not sure what that means, but you know? And so they don't have a TV. Thanksgiving without television, what is that, right? There's three games on. By the way, I don't know if I mentioned this or not, but the Bills beat the Cowboys. I should have mentioned that at the onset of the service. Right? Yeah. So, that, so there I was, and, and, and I, Laurel said they might not have TV. and I'm okay with that. Listen, they went to great lengths to make that a good experience for us. How can I not want to engage with them? How can I not want to connect with them? Well, you know, you already connected the dots, right? He went to great lengths to reach you. How could we not want to connect with him? What does God's reach do? It makes me rejoice. It makes me want to connect with him. And it makes me want to reach too. God has invited me to join him in reaching others. You'll receive power, he says in Acts one eight, When the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses. You will tell people what you have seen. You'll be my witnesses in all of Clearfield County and in all of Pennsylvania and even to the ends of the earth. In Jerusalem and Judea to the very ends of the earth. This meal, this communion meal, it's multidimensional. It looks back the whole way back to, to the Passover. It looks, it looks at Jesus' death on the cross. It looks where we are now. It looks forward to something called the wedding supper of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We just talked about that about three weeks ago. Do you remember when we were in Revelation? And then we were talking about in chapter 19, this marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus, There. Red meat, good wine, and Jesus singing on a microphone. I'm up for that, man. What a blessing that will be. And he says, you and I get to help with a guest list. We get to invite people. We get to reach. And we do that when we do things like bridge building, and we have a train set here so people feel comfortable coming in. There are people who attend our church today who have found Christ as their Savior because they showed up to eat wild game years ago. Praise God. That's the reach. You do that and you get to do that when you just share your own story, your life story with a friend. And he says, I've noticed that change in you. I know that you're different than other people. I want that too. And you say, there it is. Jesus is yours too. Just take him. We do it when we enjoy a fellowship together and somebody like Eric is here from West Africa talking to us about the kids he works with and reaches for Christ. It is a privilege to have been reached and it is a privilege to reach with God. Advent, it reminds us of a God who reaches physically, emotionally, spiritually, personally. Advent is a time when you are made more aware of the value that God puts on you as part of his creation. Communion is a time when you're made aware of that as well. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, let's come with a sense of rejoicing. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for coming in the flesh. Thank you, God, for living a perfect life. Thank you, God, for dying on my behalf. Thank you, God, for reaching to me. So as we celebrate communion, make it a celebration in your own heart and connect with him as these elements are distributed, the bread and then the cup. Just share what's on your heart with God. God, I want to tell you something that just really stinks in my life, just like you would your dad, if he was able to listen to you and was that kind of dad. And then listen to him. God, what is it that you want to say to me? As these elements are being distributed and as I'm taking this moment to examine myself, Holy Spirit, speak. What do you have to say to me? And look around this table and say, who can I invite? Who can I reach to be part of what God has done in reaching me? I want to pray that we could do that together. I'm going to ask you if you would, would you stand if you're comfortable doing so? And I'm going to pray, and then we're going to celebrate communion. Let's bow our hearts. Father in heaven, communion is something that because we do it regularly, it can become routine, and we never want it to become a meaningless routine. What we want this to be is a celebration of what you have done for us, a personal interaction with who you are as you have reached us and what you might want to say to us and what's on our heart to say to you, a remembrance, Jesus, of your death on our behalf, and a look forward to a dinner, to a dinner with you. We are thankful for your reach. May we cherish all you've done, not just through this Advent season, but through eternity in Christ's name. Amen.